12, 13, and 14, whom giving instruction to and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I need to begin by just saying that these verses on prayer that we just read are for me some of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible to understand. They occur in the context of Jesus giving encouragement and comfort to his disciples. They're troubled by the news that Jesus is going to be leaving them. They were troubled by the news that one of the twelve would betray him. They were troubled by the news that Peter specifically would deny him. And Jesus tells them that after he is gone, they will do greater works than he did when he was here on earth. And furthermore, that anything that they ask, he will do it if they ask in his name. And so these promises are given not just to the twelve, but I believe to the church, and they should encourage and comfort us as well. But the problem that I have is these verses just don't seem to be true in my experience. And if any of you can say, oh, they're true in my experience, please come and talk to me. I would like to find out how that is so. But uh, I would be very hesitant to say that I am doing greater works than Jesus did. Uh, You know, I have never walked on water yet, and uh, water skiing doesn't count. And uh, I I have never fed 5,000 with a little lunch, and I have never gone over to the cemetery and called dead corpses forth, and I've never gone up to the hospital and cleaned out the whole place. Jesus did those kind of works, and he says that we will do greater works. And I honestly cannot say that whatever I ask in his name, he does it. Every time, without exception, I bat a thousand in prayer. If you do, please come tell me your secret. I would love to learn from you, but I don't do so well in prayer. And so these are problematic verses for me, and uh, we need to think through carefully what they mean because this isn't the only time we're going to encounter them. Jesus repeats a similar promise in uh, John fifteen seven, fifteen sixteen, sixteen twenty three and 24, It's also in 1 John chapter 5 and a similar promise in Matthew 21 and the parallels in Mark and Luke. Now, my problem this week was compounded by the fact that of the 20 or so commentaries and sermons that I read in preparation for this message, I did not encounter a single one that even mentioned that there is a problem with these verses. Not one. Uh, They all just gloss over them and, oh, wonderful promises and move right on. 
and never acknowledge what I wrestle with greatly, well, how in the world do these promises, can they be true in our lives? I don't know a single person who could say, yep, those verses nail it. That's exactly my experience. And yet all these commentators, they, they gloss over that. And so I struggled with it. I, I have over two dozen books on prayer on my shelf. And only one of them, one many of you have read, Paul Miller's uh, The a Praying Life. He has one chapter where he acknowledges, yeah, they're a problem. But in my humble opinion, he doesn't solve the problem he uh, just kind of skirts around it and goes on. So that was my struggle here as I prepared. Another problem <clears throat> is a whole wing of professing Christendom. I'm not going to say they're truly Christian, but the whole health and wealth heresy has latched onto these verses and misused them. And they tell people, that Jesus is promising here, just name it and claim it by faith, and it's yours. And so, Lord, I'd like a new mansion. It's yours, baby. You know, give me a new car while you're at it. It's yours. I need healing from cancer. You've got it. You claim it by faith. And the super tragedy with these heretics, and that's what they are, is that then when somebody doesn't get what they asked for, they have the nerve to tell them, well, you didn't ask with faith. And so here you have somebody dying of cancer, and, and they're crying out to God for healing, and they don't get it. And along come these guys and add insult to injury by saying, if you just had faith, you would have been healed. That is really incredibly cruel. So that's what we're dealing with here. Now, I can state the main idea of our text very easy, even though it's not so easy to understand how to apply it. The main idea is simply this. When we believe in Jesus and we pray in his name, then we will do greater works than he did. So first I want us to try to understand what are the greater works, and then we'll try to look at prayer in Jesus' name and what that means. First of all, in verse 12, when we believe in Jesus, he says, we will do greater works than he did. Let me read that verse again. Truly, truly, which always means pay attention. This is important. I say to you, he who believes in me, that's the condition. And if you're a believer in Christ, that's you, that's me. The works that I do he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Now, the first thing we need to note is that Jesus is the head of his body, the church, and so we extend his work just as your body carries out the direction of your head, so we carry out the works of Jesus. And the book of Acts begins on that assumption because Luke there begins by referring to all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then the book of Acts unfolds what Jesus continued to do and teach through the apostles and through the early church as they were filled with the Spirit. Now, what are Jesus' works? Well, when you study that word in John's Gospel, it refers, of course, to his miracles. It also, though, extends to all that he did taught all that he did 
in obedience to the Father. And Jesus in John 17, 4, sums up his entire ministry using that word work. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you, which you have given me to do. And so if we are to do the works that Jesus did, and even greater works, it should include, you would think, miracles. Uh, it should include living our lives in complete dependence on the Father, uh, including obeying Him in all things, uh, doing works of uh, Father, the Father's love and mercy, and certainly confronting the religious errors of our day because he confronted the Pharisees every time he turned around. So everything that Jesus did, we should do, and to up it a notch, even greater. So how do we understand that? Well, one clue to Jesus' meaning in our text is his explanation of why the disciples would do greater works. He says, because... I go to the Father. And as we'll see in just a few verses, 16 and 17 here in John 14, again in John 14, 26, then in chapters 15 and 16, he'll repeat it. He's referring to the fact that when he goes to the Father, he is going to send the Holy Spirit to descend upon the church, to indwell us, to empower us, to do his works. And so, the, the greater works that the disciples and the church are to do are the direct result, then, of the Holy Spirit working in and through us as we depend on Him. Now, the question is, though, does that mean, then, that we should be doing greater miracles than Jesus did? Uh, someone who answered yes to that was the late John Wimber, And he founded the Vineyard Christian Fellowships, which uh, now have spread around the U.S. and, as far as I know, even to other countries. Um, I'm not picking on John Wimber. I'm just stating what he stated. Uh, When he began that movement, he went to this verse. He said, I believe that verse means that we should be seeing miracles on a consistent basis, just as Jesus and the apostles saw them. And that was why he, uh, I I think amicably, but he separated from the Calvary Chapel movement that he felt didn't put enough emphasis on miracles, and he wanted that to be the distinctive of the Vineyard movement. Um, The fact that Wimber's good friend, David Watson, an Anglican man, died of cancer at age 51, even though Wimber and his team went over to England, they laid hands on him, they prayed, they claimed his healing by faith, he died. Plus the fact that Wimber himself died of heart trouble in his early 60s, which isn't a long life, should make us uh, pause a minute, especially when I have had some contact with vineyard churches, and I honestly don't know a single vineyard that would say, you know, we're seeing consistently greater miracles than Jesus saw. That's just not happening. So that makes me pause. And again, I'm not being, I'm not putting these brothers and sisters down. I'm just saying my honest evaluation is it doesn't come out in the wash, okay? And I'm trying to be objective and honest here. Um, Now in the Bible, 
If you study miracles, they seem to occur mainly in clusters. There's a trickle of them between, but there's a big cluster around the time of Moses and the Exodus. There's a big cluster around the ministries of Elisha and Elijah during the wicked times of Ahab, the king, and Jezebel. There is a cluster, a smaller cluster, but a little cluster around Daniel and the exiles there in Babylon. And then, of course, a huge cluster around Jesus and the apostles. And it would seem that God grants those clusters of miracles at times when his word needs extra confirmation. When the word is going, (coughs) dying out maybe, and needs, this is the Lord at work kind of confirmation. Uh, In the book of Acts, we see some pretty spectacular miracles carried on by the apostles as the gospel now begins to spread after Christ has died, is risen, ascended to heaven. In one part of Acts, it says that even Peter's shadow falling on people as he walked by would heal them. It's amazing. Uh, Peter raised Dorcas uh, from the dead and... This seems to have died just now. You're still hearing it? Is it okay? Uh, Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. And uh, in Acts 5.16, we read this. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together and bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Notice, not some of them were being healed. It was 100%. If you got your sick person there, they were healed. Also, the Apostle Paul saw spectacular healings. In Acts 19, when he's in Ephesus, uh, it says God, this is verses 11 and 12, God was performing extraordinary miracles through Paul. Um, And we're we're on the Acts 19 slide there. God was performing extraordinary miracles through Paul so that handkerchiefs, that would probably be the sweat cloths that he wiped his hands on as he was laboring in his tent making, or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Later in his ministry, though, Paul advises Timothy when he's having stomach trouble Take a little wine. Significant. He doesn't say, Timothy, just pray and have the elders lay hands on you and you'll be healed. He gives him a medicinal remedy. And then even later in Paul's ministry, in 2 Timothy 4, it's his last book he wrote, he says, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Now this is Paul who has seen people healed left and right earlier in his ministry But now as his ministry comes down to a close, he doesn't heal Trophimus. Um, And it's interesting, too. I believe that if Paul had the health and wealth guy's mindset, he would have claimed deliverance from prison by faith. You know, this prison ministry is hindering my apostolic efforts to go to Spain to do all of these things, so... I'm just claiming by faith, God got Peter out of prison, he can get me out of prison, and off you go. Well, that didn't happen. And, of course, Paul didn't claim 
freedom from being executed by faith. He died there in prison. Now, the author of Hebrews, and you have to understand, Hebrews was written to a second-generation church in the 60s sometimes. So these are not the first wave of Christians. And they are Jews, and they are tempted to go back to Judaism because uh, they're under fire. They're, They're being persecuted. And so the author, whoever he was, and there are many ideas on that, but he writes to the Hebrews, and he testifies how in the early days of the gospel, God testified and authenticated the message through signs and wonders and miracles. That's in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And what he's trying to do there is convince these second-generation Christians the gospel message is authentic. Don't go back to Judaism. God has authenticated now his message through Jesus, and the way he did it was by the miracles he did in that first generation. Now, the argument is this. If those miracles were still commonplace in the church, he would have pointed to that and said, this proves it, but he doesn't. He goes back and says, look back to the first generation, folks, and you'll have proof that uh, the message is authentic. And so my conclusion is this. There are times that God can and does do miracles, spectacular miracles, to authenticate his word. Often today, that happens on the cutting edge of the gospel, going into a new people group where they need that authentication. But at the same time, we are not living in a time where miracles are as commonplace as they were in the apostolic church. And so our position should be this. We should never doubt that God can do miraculous things today if that is his will. But it is not normal today, is my argument. And as I said, I do not know of any person or any group that is experiencing near the same miraculous events that the early church did, where every person, without exception, is healed, where there are these stupendous miracles going on. And so my conclusion is Jesus was not talking about doing greater miracles when he says you'll do greater works than he did. Well, then the issue is, what are they? Well, D.A. Carson, in his commentary, argues Uh, that the greater works are those works that are done on the basis of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. In other words, the new covenant ministry that we are given as the people of God. Um, I believe that the greater works point also just to the power of the gospel that we have been entrusted with to transform hearts and lives. As it spreads, you'll remember that on the day of Pentecost, Peter saw 3,000 people, men, probably more women and children, saved one day. That's probably more than Jesus saw in his three years of earthly ministry aggregate. Um, And so the, the gospel spread. And the book of Acts tells how it kept spreading around Jerusalem, then to Cornelius the Gentile, then beyond that up to Antioch in Gentile territory, and then Paul and Barnabas took it uh, to the west, and it spread into Gentile territory and throughout the Roman Empire. 
J.C. Ryle succinctly observes this. He says, there is no greater work possible than the conversion of a soul. And so as we, as the church, go out with the message of the gospel, trusting the Holy Spirit to work, to bring the good news to others, I believe we are doing the works that Jesus did, and in the sense that the new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant. Hebrews says that. In the sense that the message we have can convert souls, and we do it not just in a little corner of the world, in Palestine there, but now we do it throughout the world as the body of Christ. The works we do are greater in extent than Jesus did, greater in number than Jesus did. And... uh, Also, there have been times and places where the work of Christ has gone forward with extraordinary power. Uh, These are called revivals. And if you've never read accounts of the revivals, genuine revivals that have happened in church history, they are thrilling. Where thousands of people in a short period of time come to faith in Christ. It's, it's a remarkable thing. On the other hand, there have been faithful servants of God, like Judson in Burma, like missionaries in North Africa and other Muslim countries that have gone out and have faithfully, prayerfully shared the gospel all of their lives, and they've seen a trickle, if any, converts. I read, heard recently of a story, I think it was shared here at FCF at a conference among Muslim missionaries where a woman had been 36 or 38 years on the field and she had seen her first convert and she said, now Lord, your servant can depart in peace. I saw one, saw one come to Christ. And uh, those greater works are accomplished through prayer and that's the next difficult subject we turn to here. And that is in verses 13 and 14 that prayer in Jesus' name is the way to do greater works than the greater works than he did. Let me read those verses again. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, there are four things there. There is the extent of prayer of what we ask for. There's the basis on which we ask. There's the objective for which we ask. And then there's the result of asking. First of all, the extent of Jesus' promise is whatever. Whatever you ask or anything that you ask. Now, the context is always crucial in interpretation. And in the context, Jesus is not saying, whatever crazy thing you may ask, I'll do it. So you go, yeah, Lord, that new mansion I really would like and throw in a Mercedes while you're at it. That's not what he's talking about. That, that is clearly not what Jesus is promising. Uh, and tacking on in Jesus' name, amen, is not the magic formula. As I'll mention in a moment, nothing wrong with that, but that's not what he means. We'll look at that in a moment. So um, what does he mean? Well, 
John Piper, in his book on missions, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad, argues that the church, instead of using prayer as a walkie-talkie by people on the front lines to call in extra supplies for the battle, he says, we've turned it into an intercom in the den to call in more uh, refreshments from the butler, you know. In other words, we're, we're trying to use prayer to make our lives more comfy, not to do battle against the enemy. And I think that the point here is, in the context, prayer is in the context of doing the greater works here that Jesus wants us to do, or to use the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is, is to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we are to be praying, for God's work to be done through us and through his other people. And certainly there is a place, as that prayer acknowledges, to say, give us this day our daily bread. We have needs. And there's nothing wrong with praying for health or praying for basic sustenance or those kind of comfortable needs. But the main focus of our prayer should be, Lord, do your work through me and through your people. Extend your kingdom. Bring souls to Christ Uh, sanctify your saints so that we might be faithful representatives of Jesus so your name would not be uh, besmirched through us. That should be the focus of our prayer life. And so in prayer, we are to submit to God's will and to ask God to accomplish his will in and through his people. Now, the rub comes, how do you determine what God's will is? is so that you pray in line with it and the bible is clear god's will is not always obvious even to the greatest of saints moses as you know entreated the lord lord let me go into the promised land and it was a reasonable prayer the people needed leadership and moses was a great leader but god said sorry no you can't go in The Apostle Paul tells us how he prayed repeatedly that his thorn in the flesh would be removed. He says his thorn in the flesh was demonically uh, caused. I don't know what it was. Nobody does for sure. There are speculations. But it clearly hindered Paul from full strength and from full ministry. And yet, he says, God told him, no, Paul, My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so when you're weak, you depend on me and you're strong. And so God turned, denied Paul's request and let him go on in his weakness. Paul also prayed fervently. In fact, so much so he said, I would to God that I would lose my salvation if my fellow Jews would come to faith. So he was fervent in his prayer And yet, here we are 2,000 years later, and for the most part, the Jews are apostate. They are not coming yet to faith. I believe they will, Romans 11, but they haven't. Even Jesus, as you know, in the garden, prayed great drops of blood, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But he quickly added, yet not my will, but yours be done. So there is this mystery that, Uh, is here. It's a tension where we should ask God to spread the gospel 
We should ask God to glorify his name around the world through the spread of the gospel and the sanctification of his saints. As Ephesians 3.20 puts it, we should ask God to do abundantly, uh, far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or we can think. And yet we need to keep in mind, and here's the tension, my ways are not your ways, Lord. My thoughts are not always your thoughts. And sometimes God keeps his greatest servants in chains. And sometimes God allows his most faithful witnesses to be killed for his name's sake. And so even though we don't always understand why God does what God does, I believe that when we ask God in prayer, we should shoot for the moon. We should ask God for big things and know, God, you can do it if it's your will. You can pour out your spirit on this land. Go for broke. Uh, Ask God those things because the extent, Jesus says, is whatever Whatever you ask, anything you ask. Now, the basis, then, of our prayers of Jesus' promise is in my name. And as I said, that is not a formula. It's fine if you close your prayers by saying, in Jesus' name, amen, as long as you understand what that means. Don't just say it. Think what it means. In Jesus' name means to pray based on the person and the work of Christ. He is our representative there before the throne. He's our advocate. And uh, all that he is, all that he did for us on the cross, is the only basis we have to come into the holy presence of God and not be consumed. And yes, we must be obedient to Christ. Verse 15 of our text uh, says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But our obedience is not the basis of our prayers. Uh, On the one hand, we can't pray confidently if we know there's sin in our heart. God will not hear us. But we don't come and say, I've really been good this week. I've had seven quiet times, you know, and I witnessed to three people this week, and I did this, and I, you know, no, no, no. We never come on that basis. We always come saying, Lord, I'm just an unworthy servant of yours, and I come on the basis that your son Jesus died for my sins. He went into the holy place before me. He is there as my representative. Based on who and what he is, I ask that you would answer my prayers. So you come to the Father through your high priest, who is Jesus, there on the throne. And you recognize that the name of Jesus is above every name that is named not only in this age, but in the age to come. And that means you come believing, Lord, you have the power to defeat Satan. You have the power to answer this request. And you ask what you think Jesus would want you to ask based on carrying out his work on his behalf. And you ask God to be gracious to you because you are in his son. You're seeking to do his will. But then you also ask, as Jesus did in the garden, submissively, saying, Lord, I may not understand your will, and so I want your will to be done, not my will. But it sure seems to me this should be what you want done, and so I ask boldly. That's the balance. That's what it means, as I understand it, to ask in his name. Then we have the objective of Jesus' promise, and that is the Father's glory 
in the Son. He says, I want you to ask so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, that's a further condition to whatever. You ask whatever would glorify the Father in the Son. Now, that can include the salvation of a loved one. It could include the salvation of an enemy of the gospel. Remember, Paul got saved. He was an enemy. Uh, It could extend to praying for unreached people groups around the world that have yet to hear the good news of Jesus, and they need to hear, so let's pray for those. It could include praying for troubled Christian marriages, that they would be healed, because we want Christ to be enthroned in every home as a display of his glory. Um, It could include rebellious children coming back to faith and, and following Christ. I mean, anything that is in line with God's kingdom purpose. Sometimes people will tell me, oh, so-and-so's in the hospital, please pray. And I'm dumb enough that I usually ask, what should I pray? And they kind of look at me dumbfounded like, well, pray that he'll be healed, of course. Well, is that God's will? I mean, is that why God has this person in the hospital? Maybe God is trying to do something in that person's heart. It may be they're in the hospital because God wants to teach them how frail our flesh is. And so that when they get out of the hospital, they'll live in light of eternity. Maybe he has them in the hospital so that they will trust him more as they recognize I am weak, he is strong. Maybe they're there to be a witness to a nurse or a doctor or someone. We don't know. Uh, what his purpose is. He may be glorified through that person dying joyously. That happens. Where they die and people that aren't Christians say, he always seems so happy and so peaceful. Time for witness. We don't know God's purpose, but we should pray that the Father would be glorified in his Son. So there's the extent, whatever, There's the basis in my name. There's the objective, Father be glorified. And there is the result of Jesus' promise. He says, I will do it. And he repeats it in verse 13 and then in verse 14. So we can't dodge it. The result of our praying should be Jesus did it. And notice Jesus does it, not the Father. And that means Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus is God. If he were not God, he could not promise that he would answer our prayers. Um, Now, here's where it gets difficult. Because sometimes we pray, and we pray that God's kingdom and glory would be advanced. We pray on the basis of Christ and who he is, his name. Uh, we, We got it all lined up, and it doesn't happen. So what what goes wrong there? For example, I've prayed for the salvation of loved ones, that they would come to Christ. As far as I can tell, they died without Christ. I have prayed for healing for some of the Christian marriages that I have counseled. And I've said, Lord, this is not just so that they'll be happy, although they will be. It's so that you would be glorified. Please, Lord, break into this marriage and and bring healing. 
and they divorced. I prayed for healing for some faithful saints that, frankly, we needed their ministry in this church, and they died. I have known godly parents who have prayed for prodigal children to come back to the faith, and their hearts are broken as the kids just seem to destroy their lives with sin. So how do you explain all of that? And we could go on and on. I I know faithful missionaries that have labored for the gospel in hard, closed countries for years. As I say, they hardly see any fruit at all. And sometimes those who make profession of faith turn back to paganism. Hard things. Well... I wish I could resolve the problem totally. I can't, but I'm going to offer you four thoughts that hopefully might help here as we conclude. First of all, the tension that we experience stems from the fact that we can know God's will of desire. That's revealed in his word. But we can't know God's will of decree. I don't like this microphone. It keeps going away and coming back. and it doesn't work right, but... <laughs> pray for it. You pray. I got to think about what I'm saying up here. <clears throat> anyway, we know God's will of desire. The Bible says clearly God desires that all would repent and come to salvation. 1 Timothy 2.4. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33 tells us. But we also know the tension God has not decreed that all would be saved. He could save all if that were his choice. In his inscrutable wisdom, he did not choose that. God desires that all believers would glorify him by living holy lives that would be exemplary. And yet we all know people who profess to know Christ, and I'm convinced they do know Christ, but they fall into terrible sin and uh, defile his name. And so, uh, there's a mystery there. And all I can say there is, pray as best as you know in line with the revealed will of God in his word, and then submit to the fact, I don't know your will of decree, Lord. I, I don't know what it is you are going to accomplish through this, but I'm asking you to do according to what your word reveals. A second thought, Jesus' promise to do whatever we ask does not undermine the many scriptures that tell us to wait on the Lord. In other words, Jesus doesn't say when he will do it. And we, you know, you read the promise and it sounds like you, you pray it and man, it's a done deal. Tomorrow you'll see it. It doesn't say that. And Jesus himself taught that parable about the widow that kept coming back and coming back and coming back until she got what she was after. And uh, so sometimes God is glorified by us learning to wait on him. And you could wait all your lifetime. And maybe he doesn't even answer until after your lifetime. But David's words in Psalm 27, 14 are still applicable. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And so God will surely accomplish his purpose. His timing is just not always 
our timing. A third thought. God often accomplishes his purposes in ways that seem backward to us, as I mentioned with some examples already. We pray, Lord, spread the gospel. And he says, okay, and he sends persecution. (laughs) That seems backward to us, doesn't it? That's how God often does it. He did it in the book of Acts. He's done it in the church in China. About a year ago, a faithful man named Samuel Lamb went to be with the Lord, a Chinese pastor. He spent 33 years in prison for his faith. And uh, after he got out for the final time, he called up the authorities and said, I'd like you to rearrest me. And they said, what? <laughs> Why? And he said, because every time you arrest me, my church doubles in size, and I want to see my church grow. And isn't that how God often works? You know, the church in Jerusalem is persecuted, and so God scatters them, and they move up to Antioch. Uh, We pray for strength, and God says, great, and makes you weak. Paul experienced that. And when he was weak, then he was strong. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, Peter. Now, if I were in Jesus' position, I would have said, Satan, be gone. You can't sift Peter like wheat. That's not going to happen. Jesus didn't pray that. Jesus said, I've prayed for you that when you are restored, you'll strengthen your brothers. And you know what? Because of that story in the Bible... Thousands of Christians who have failed like Peter have been strengthened through his example and the Lord's grace as he shows how he restored Peter. Um, There's a mystery. God often works upside down to what we would think. And then here's a final thought. We don't understand all that God is doing And so we may go to our graves not knowing why God seemingly didn't answer our prayers. I've often thought about the Apostle John. As you may know in Acts, Peter got miraculously delivered from prison. But it's only mentioned in a verse in passing, James was executed by Herod. James was John's brother. And I can't help but wonder if John, to the day he died, wondered, Lord, why did you deliver Peter and you let my brother die? You could have delivered James. And James could have had a great impact for the gospel had he lived another 30, 40 years. We don't know why. We don't know why. I bet John the Baptist's disciples scratched their heads thinking, Lord, You could have restrained that drunken King Herod from chopping off John's head. And John was such a faithful man. He was only in his early 30s. Think of the ministry John could have had testifying to Jesus. He died. I once read a story about a businessman who was traveling home and he stopped and picked up a hitchhiker along the side of the road. Drove with him for several hours. The hitchhiker was a Christian. And he began to witness to the businessman. And before the businessman dropped him off, they pulled to the side of the road, and that businessman bowed his head and trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord. As the hitchhiker got out of the car, the businessman handed him his card and said, here's my business card. If you ever 
Come to Chicago, look me up. I'll take you out to lunch. It was several years before the man got up to Chicago, and when he did, he stopped by the man's office and went in and handed the card to a woman who was sitting there and said, is, is so-and-so in? And her face froze, and she said to him, where did you get this card? And he explained the story, and he used it to witness to her and told her how he had been picked up by this man and how the man had trusted in Christ as his Savior, and that's why he was here to see how he was doing. And the woman said, well, that man was my husband, and he never made it home that day. He was hit and killed on the trip home, and she said, and she was weeping. She said, I'm a Christian too, but I have been bitter at God because I was praying for the salvation of my husband, and as far as I knew, he died without Christ. Now, I know every story doesn't turn out that way, the happy ending where we know, well, he's in heaven. But I tell the story because it illustrates we don't know all the pieces. We don't know how God is working. And we won't know till we're in heaven. And then it will all make sense. And we'll say, ah, now I see. And so our job is to be active in doing Jesus' works. Our job is to be faithful in praying that God would do far more than we can ask or even think, knowing he is able, he is capable to do it. Lord, we ask you to do your will. When it seems like he doesn't, we are still faithful to say, Lord, I don't understand, but I trust you. And I know that you can work, and I know that you will work all things together for good for your saints. And you trust him that if not in this life, at least in eternity, you'll understand how he answered and how he used you to do even greater works than he did. Well, that's my understanding of what to me is a very difficult text. I hope it's been helpful to you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, <clears throat> we walk in darkness, Paul said, we see through a glass darkly right now. Someday we'll see you face to face. And then it will all make sense. All the tears, all the struggles, all the setbacks, all of our misunderstandings will be instantly cleared up when we see Jesus. And so I pray that your saints would be strong in doing your works that we would be bold in sharing the gospel, that we would be faithful in believing prayer, knowing that you are mighty to do your work, even in the hardest of hearts. And when we don't see it come about exactly as we thought it should, I pray we will trust you anyways and know, Lord, that you are working for your greater purpose, your sovereign glory. And so I ask that you would do that kind of work through me and through this church as we, your body, seek to proclaim your name in this dark city we live in and that this Christmas season would be an opportunity for witness for Christ. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.